there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Bryce Cherry Holmes is our guest this week. Bryce is a retired staff sergeant in the United States Marine Corps, a husband and father of two, an ambassador for the national nonprofit Soldier Strong, and an advocate for people who are experiencing debilitating physical and mental injuries. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he sustained several injuries during eight years of multiple deployments. Those injuries led to a level four, I'm sorry, excuse me, a four-level spinal fusion, and ultimately left him as a T3 complete paraplegic. With the help of robotic exoskeleton, Bryce has reaped the physical and emotional benefits of being able to stand, walk, and enjoy everyday activities. Bryce Cherry Holmes, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's good to have you with us today, brother. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. So let's just start off, Bryce. Why'd you choose to serve in the military? Uh, well, to be honest with you, uh, my my grandmother, uh, just before she passed, uh, one of her one things that she mentioned to me was she said, you know, what you're doing right now is, is good. You know, I was on the right path of working two jobs and just doing a lot. But she's like, you need a career. And you're 18. You need a career. You're not planning on going to college at the time anymore. She's like, go join the military. And it, it kind of resonated with me. And, you know, at that point, I was just like, okay, well, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go join. And I, that was really about it. I just spur of the moment thing. I was actually at a uh, job one night where uh, I was working at security and where I actually met my wife at. Um, and I happened to see a, a former, former Marine in a pair of camouflage utility pants cut off and uh, was like, hey, like what branch were you in? You know, like talk to him. He's like, here, call this guy. And I Literally was at boot camp less than about a month later. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yeah, just hey, get me out of here as fast as you can because <laughs> I, I need to go. <laughs> when men and women join the military, they can choose an MOS or a military occupational specialty. And that's what we civilians call simply a job. Right. What MOS did you choose and why? Uh, that's a common mis misconception, actually. So... You don't really get to choose necessarily your MOS. There are certain quotas that they have, uh, you know, for for how the military, what branch, what they need, so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, if they need someone that's, you know, six foot two, uh, and a, you know, a lean, mean, green fight machine, but they can play the trumpet, well, they might go to the Marine Corps band, right? Um, so they might need that person to go do that job. My job, uh, I went in and I, I specifically said, uh, you know, I don't want to be infantry. Not that I was afraid to, to be infantry. It was just, I don't want to be in infantry because my grandmother had said, you need a career. Well, thinking about it in the long term effect, being in the infantry 
it it will teach me a lot of things, but it doesn't give me uh, a skill set that I I felt would be beneficial to a future career. So I looked at honestly, I looked at how the job market was at the time, what was going to be needed over the next decade, and logisticians was one of them. So I said I want to I want to go into logistics, um, and I that's that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but logistics inside the Marine Corps is kind of different. You have a plans and an operations side of it, and then and then they merge eventually, and you have the overarching uh, in charge of everything, uh, both plans, operations, and the supply chain side. So that's where I ended up at was in that overarching area when I got retired. But that's why I chose, you know, I, I ended up going in there going like, listen, like this is, you know, I want a career and logistics uh, is supposed to grow tenfold over the next decade. I think, you know, a random number off the top of my head right then and there. So it was like, well, that's what I want to do. And the guy was like, cool. Uh, when do you want to leave? Like tomorrow sounds like a good time. So perfect segue. When you're in the Marines or another service branch, do you have a choice of where or when you're deployed? You know, can you turn down a deployment ah. or, or volunteer for one? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I went to boot camp in July. Uh, I don't remember the date that I got there, but I went there in July of 2007. I graduated October 19th, 2007. Graduated school in February of 2000 and went to MCT Marine combat training, which is at that time was only, I think 30 days. And then I went to school and that was, I think uh, 30 or 45 days, but I got out of there around February, March of Oh nine or of Oh eight, sorry, 2008. And almost immediately upon arriving, they were like, Hey, we need people to go on a deployment. And I went, boom, I'll go pick me, pick me. Ooh, ooh. Um, I did that because it was like, that is the reason why I, um, I'm going to reposition, but, but that's the reason why I, you know, I, I raised my right hand to, you know, support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Right. And continuing on with that. But that's the reason, you know, when I did that, I did that knowing that I was going to go, well, if I'm going to go, I'd rather have that choice to say, yeah, I want to go. But you, you, you do have a chance to volunteer, uh, like I did. Um, and then while out, and I, that was when I deployed to Iraq. I deployed in August of 2008, and then uh, about three quarters of the way through that deployment, uh, so around December, they were like, "Hey, does anybody want to volunteer to stay another six months?" And I raised my hand and volunteered to stay in Iraq for an additional six months. Um, so. But you also have a chance to, you, you somewhat have a chance to deny it, it, but it is very specific to situations. So typically you don't have that chance, but situation dependent, you know, like uh, if you have family issues that are going on, say, you know, uh, wife might be pregnant, like uh, my wife was pregnant uh, when I raised my hand again to go to Afghanistan. And, um, we had our baby before we had our daughter before I deployed, but they were like, you know, Hey, look, you know, you can stay behind. I was like, again, you know, I rose, I raised my right hand to, 
to do just this. So I'm going to go. And at that point though, in my career, I'd already been very well versed in, uh, logistics. And I knew that if I went, I was going to ensure that every person that was out there that was infantry or was out there engaged in combat continuously that, uh, I was going to take care of them, you know, by all means necessary, whatever that took, making sure they had absolutely everything they needed in order to accomplish their mission. And then on top of that, I always went out of my above and beyond out of my way to, uh, you know, like make friends where you can make friends at, uh, without going into too many details and have maybe some people donate some things and then, uh, send those out to like some of the most austere locations where the, you know, the Marines didn't get a chance at those locations to, uh, have a chance Certain to have luxuries. like a yeah they didn't need a, they didn't get a chance to have like a, like a monster you know or or you know nicotine necessarily because uh, the the it was rare that they would get mail on time and you know and it was rare that uh, the teams that would go out to these places that would they wouldn't make regular trips because it's it's a lot um, so I would just make sure that like hey. Can I get a, you know, three or four pallets of monsters and, uh, you know, a bunch of these, what we call licky and chewies, like just a bunch of snack items. And I would get a head count at these locations and I'd put them on, you know, myself, I'd go out, put them all inside tri walls, which are just little boxes. And either I would airdrop them or, uh, fly them right out to that place and let the helicopter land, push them off and take off. Cause those austere locations are the ones that are usually the most, um, dangerous. The, yeah. The most dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to show my age here for a minute. I know you're way too young to have seen this show called <laughs> mash. Mm. Uh, but you sound like you're a bit of a radar, radar O'Reilly, uh, clinger here in terms, in terms of, uh, doing some horse trading to take care of your, your Marines. So I'd love to hear that. that. That's absolutely correct. I'm not too young, Chris, I'm not too young. I have seen that show. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, what it comes down to is uh, I learned very early on in my uh, career in the Marine Corps that it's, it's not necessarily what you know, but who you know, and that, that, that you can make those sort of deals happen. And with those deals being made, you're able to take care of the many. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people focus internally on themselves where I even now I try to stay as humble as I can and I focus on, you know, I won't give you this sweatshirt, Chris, cause it's, you know, it says my, it's my disabled, but deadly wheelchair with a rifle in my hand. Um, uh, but, uh, but I, I would give you the other one that I have cause I have to keep one. I like this color better. So looks better on <laughs> you anyway. Yeah. I appreciate it. So very few Americans these days know someone who serves in the military. And of course, even fewer have, have served in the military themselves. Yeah. How is military service different than civilian life for the people who serve and for their families? A very good question on that one, actually. Um, yeah, I think that the statistics say is it's uh, like less than 1% of the United States population has served in the, in the military in some aspect, whether on active duty or on, in a reserve capacity or even National Guard. Um, and then on top of that, there's even you know less than you know, 1% of those are Marines as well. So, uh, cause we're, we're the, one of the smallest branches. Um, and we're, we're really not even a branch for, we're a department of the Navy and all, uh, 
I'll make a quick jab here at my uh, my fellow service members, but you know we're we're the Department of the Navy, of the Navy, but uh, we're the Men's Department of the Navy. Um, <laughs> We've never heard that before. <laughs> yes, yes, we are the we are a Department of the Navy. All our funding comes from the Navy, but we happen to be the Men's Department of the Navy. So I have a lot of friends that are still in the Navy. A lot of them are chiefs now. One of them I grew up with, very very close high school friend of mine. I won't say his last name, but his first name is Jake. And uh, I don't want to put him on blast and have him get in trouble. <laughs> but how, how I guess the, it differs, back to your question, is how it differs is uh, you. it's kinetic. It's very kinetic in, in a military family. You have to be fluid. Uh, you really do. If you're not able to be fluid and be willing to move on a moment's notice, um, there's a lot of times that I had, you know, we would do these, you know, uh, preparation deployment, uh, preparation for deployment where we'd be on a 24 hour standby. Um, and so, you know, it's my wife knew that, you know, like, Hey, within these next 24 to 72 hours, I could be going here, uh, because that was where the conflict was at the time, right? Like I could be going there, um, a lot of them were training and drills, obviously, everyone that I ever did was, but they're still there. So you have to be very kinetic. It's a kinetic environment. Whereas, I, you know, after I got out in the civilian world, it, it's, it's more of a day-to-day operation. You just get up, you go to work, you come home, you know, do what you need to do, get up, go to, go to bed, get up, go to work again, the same. So whereas there it was you know it's it's a salaried position if you want to call it inside the inside the military um uh so but but you're on duty seven days a week 365 days a year no matter what so unless you're on leave and even then you can get pulled off so like hey you gotta come back because we're deploying it's like oh all right that happened to me once i was like oh all right well i'll be on my way back shortly so you raised your right hand to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Yes, you sir. raised your hand seven more times for a total of eight deployments. You were a young man when you were deployed to a war zone. How did that first deployment affect your mental and emotional well-being and that of the other people you served with? I would say, uh, just real quick on the, on the first note, not a total of eight. Um, you could count them that way only due to the timeframes and how the phases played out within OIF Operation Iraqi Freedom and OEF Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, and then with my deployment to Central South America as well as Haiti. So in total, I deployed technically three times, but the way the Marine Corps counts it, it's, it's right around that mark that you just mentioned. Um, but the, and I'm sorry, I was focused on that part of that question. I wanted to make sure I, I got that correct. But what was the second what's, part of what's that? What's your mental and emotional well-being, you know, as a young man, your first deployment? What's going through your head when oh, you're on the ground? Uh, yeah, literally, uh, I made sure I was the last person to get onto that plane. Um, and I did that for a reason. I said, you know, I want to be the last person on because I want to be the, 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 last, the last person off. And the whole time there, you know, I, I, I spoke to God and I said, you know, you know, basically like, 
if if you allow me to have control of the situation, I'll have control of it and I'll do my best. And if it's your if it's uh, if it's my time to go, then it's my time to go, and I leave that in your hands. Um, but if I have no control over that situation, I leave it completely into you, you know, Lord. Like that's it. Uh, and uh, as soon as I got boots on ground in uh, Kuwait, you know, it's where we staged before we fly into before we flew into Iraq. It was August uh, 11th of 2009. Uh, we landed in Kuwait August 13th. And, um, I'll tell you what, uh, I thought North Carolina where I live now was hot, and humid. We landed at like two o'clock in the morning and you get off a plane that you've been on for like almost 18 hours. And, uh, that, the <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, it was still like 110 degrees outside. <laughs> Took your breath away as soon as you walked out the doors. <laughs> Is there oxygen here? How do people live? <laughs> um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of my, that was kind of my like, uh, emotional state, I guess. I just kind of literally left it up to God's hands and, and my mentality of it as well was just, you know, it's, 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 I have, if I can control it, I'm going to do it. If I can't, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about it. And I understood that concept. So for me, it wasn't that challenging for others though. I, I witnessed them go through a, a myriad of, of, you know, their own trials and tribulations as they were getting ready to deploy getting ready to get on the plane, getting, you know, stopping in these certain countries that we stop at before to refuel and, you know, refit, if you will, and watching how they, some of them just break down. Some of them weren't ready. Some mentally, they weren't ready. Emotionally, they weren't ready. Physically, they were there. Mentally, they were there. They just didn't know it. Um, they didn't know it because of the way we're trained. It's muscle memory, so everything just happens so fast once you start getting in any type of situation you've been trained for that, and even ones that you haven't, that you're just reacting without even realizing that you're reacting uh, until you know maybe even days later. So for me, it wasn't challenging. I would say I, I literally left it into God's hands. You sustained several injuries during your years of service in both Iraq and Afghanistan that caused severe and ultimately debilitating pain. How those injuries happen and describe the pain you were coping with. Uh, so the, the first injury happened in March of 2009 and I was filling up a, a water bowl, what we call it's a big, it's not very big, but it's a water trailer. And um, we had the TCN or what's called the third country national. That's, you know, over there, and I'm holding on to this this hose that's filling our 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 water trailer with potable water for us because we were going on a five day mission. And uh, I gave him the international like you know shut it off sign like or the international like stop and I even yelled stop like to stop the flow of water because it was getting full. I had my flak jacket on, full kit gear weapon kevlar unfortunately my kevlar at that time i didn't have it on my head because we were still on base so i just had it clipped onto my flak jacket because it's you know hot in iraq <laughs> so um some breeze felt good but uh like i said you know 180 rounds of ammunition a couple other you know gizmos and gadgets with me 
and uh, he didn't shut it off. And so when when it overflowed, I started to slip. And I'm, I'm about it's about six, seven foot in the air, maybe a little bit higher, probably about closer seven and eight foot in the air. And but I'm six foot three and three quarters. So at that time, I weighed about 180 pounds. And uh, but with the with all my kid on, I was probably closer to 225. Um, as I started to slip, I pushed away from the water bowl from the water trailer. I landed flat footed, knees locked. I ruptured two discs in my lower back and herniated another one. Um, but when I did that, I also rolled my right ankle and I kind of fell backwards. And when I fell backwards, I got my, uh, actually, I can't remember if it was my first or second TV. I think it was my son because I hit my head on the back of the water trailer and I hit back my head on the water trailer and knocked myself unconscious. And I, didn't know what was going on until I was already at the regimental aid station and they were triaging me. Um, and you know, they, a lot of times they were just like, you know, Hey, this is, this is pretty bad. Um, you know, we don't know what we're going to do yet. And I was like, well, you know, listen, like I raised my hand to stay and volunteer. And, you know, at that time when you volunteer to stay somewhere, it's not, necessarily in your job it's wherever they need help at and and within that you know that uh area of operation um so you fill just a regular any billet that's possible so i worked for the the px or you know the uh like the walmart i guess you would of uh of the military and so my job department right yes 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 um uh, only the men's department there. Um, but you know, so, uh, I, you know, I let them know, I'm like, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. You're like, they're like, well, uh, here's some, uh, here's some Motrin, make sure you drink some water. And you know, the other uh, jokes we have about it is we always say that, you know, make sure you drink water, change your socks, take a shower. You'll be okay. Here's some ibuprofen. Um, all was good though. You know, like it, uh, I, I just, I was young, I was dumb, uh, but I was still full of, you know, piss and vinegar, if you will. And I was still willing and ready to fight. So I convinced the individuals there to let me stay and I would go, I went and saw them regularly. Um, and that was a good thing. It, it, I, I dealt, that's when the pain really kind of started, but it, it kind of sucked too, because I had to stop weightlifting. You know, I couldn't do deadlifts anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, after that, uh, May of the same year, um, on a small patrol out to uh, a little area where uh, we were going to just do what's called a West Team, and uh, on the way out, <clears throat> a vehicle in front of us their mind roller um, hit a IED. Luckily it wasn't a very large one. Um, so, and then their mind roller took the brunt of it, which is a big, heavy piece of equipment. with a lot of wheels in front of it that basically take the, uh, put a lot of pressure on the ground for pressure plate IEDs. Um, and well, when they stopped, we stopped uh, but when you have, you know, a couple ton of vehicle and the driver, 
hits the brakes. Um, however fast you were going, it's kind of like if the earth stopped spinning, I think we spent like 1700 miles an hour or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but whatever it is, like as soon as, as soon as it stops, everything keeps going. Right. So I got tossed around in the back of this MRAP and, uh, messed up my back no more. But, uh, again, I was still willing and able to fight. and uh, just had to convince them to let me stay until August. And so that's what I did. I was just about, I, I had just come back from, uh, R and R too, rest and relaxation. You get two weeks if you, uh, if you spend more than however long out there. So you get two weeks. They'll, they they send you wherever you want to go. I came back to Iowa. Won't forget that either because uh, I got off the plane in Iowa and they had just cut the grass and I stopped in the middle of the street. And just there's a smell of grass. <laughs> there's not sand in my nose. Like it's incredible. How does that level of pain affect your attitude, your mental health, and your interaction with other people? My interaction with other people, that that part of it, uh, I didn't let that pain have an impact on that. I I, I really didn't. I I, uh, I internalized it, every bit of it. So mentally on that aspect also, I just internalized it. Um, I told myself i mean i got when i got back home from that deployment you know i went through the physical therapy i went through the motions that they tell you that you need to do um and that was it uh i when i went through all those the you know the motions if you will i i said hey you know let's just keep like let's keep going let's keep going like i more physical therapy what else is next for pain management by about that time, though, uh, you know, when I, I got back from my Iraq in 2009, August, uh, my wife and I got married in third or in, uh, in, uh, better know the date. Thank, She's listening. No, yeah, I know. November, uh, no, <laughs> November 26, 2009, Thanksgiving day. Um, it was when the marriage certificate was signed at least. Uh, but yeah, so we got married in November of that year, and then we had a wedding that was planned for May of the next year. And in 2010, eh, on my way to the to our wedding, I got a phone call that was like, "Hey, uh, you've been by name requested to come on this deployment on ship to Central and South America." And I was like, uh, "I'm I'm I'm going back to my wedding right now." Uh, I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know what 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 can I say? And they're like, ah, you kind of need it. And I'm like, all right, fine. So I I took off. You know, we got home. I got there, did the quick wedding ceremony. Yes, I do. She did, and you know, I do. I do. Exchange rings. Got back. Left uh, end of June of uh, of that year. So, and then I got back literally uh, the day before our uh, one-year technical marriage um, anniversary so uh, it it was it was challenging but that that deployment was difficult too because i was on ship and steel decks steel floors they don't actually give a lot <laughs> i think co- concrete gives more than they did so it, it actually hurt my back quite a bit which was ironic because the the gunnery sergeant who was in charge of me at the time I was a corporal, he uh, he ended up getting medevaced for a back injury that he had, 
And uh, I ended up taking his place as the combat cargo assistant chief uh, for the well deck. And um, uh, not really taking his place. I was more overseen than anything else. But they, the command I was with, they trusted me. They knew I knew what I was doing. Uh, so I, I say I took his place. He might beg to differ. Gunny, I apologize. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh you know though that during that deployment there's uh there's videos on youtube it's called uh cp uh so charlie papa dash 10 continuing promise 2010 we went we were the second ones to go to haiti to do uh humanitarian assistance missions and then we went around the central south america doing the same stuff and um but i was lifting up trailers right like picking up the tongue of a trailer and you don't realize how much pressure that puts on your lower back until you know probably the uh hundredth one that's not light and you had to walk them over the what they call the pad eyes which kind of looked like a plus sign or a crosshair uh, on the deck of the ship so that they did the, the tongue didn't get stuck in them uh so i ended up hurt too but again i was i don't know 22 i guess at that time uh still young and dumb so i just stayed in the fight and kept 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 on keeping on so so at what point did you or is it your doctors decide that you should have spinal surgery? Uh, so I deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 in January and came back, I think, September of that year. Um, I got hurt again over there as well, but uh, longer story shorter, I guess. Uh, well, I re-injured my back again over there. And when I got back, my when I left... You know, I told you before we went to Afghanistan in October of, of 2011, uh, we had our first child. We had our daughter. And uh, I left and she, you know, her head would fit in the palm of my hand and her butt crack was at my at my elbow joint. When I came back, she was walking to me. So I missed out a bunch on, on her growing up and her, you know, first part of her life. And uh, a couple months went by. And I want to say 2013, uh, I went to sergeant's course uh, for professional military education. And at sergeant's course in Camp Pendleton, you know, you, you run the mountains, if you will. And so up a mountain, but the back down is up the mountain wasn't hard to run. Uh, down was the more challenging one, especially being as tall as I am. You know, I tended to stride out. So it was impact on that back all the time. And, um, that's when I started having like really bad chronic pain and, and weird tingling sensations and a lot of what's called radiculopathy, which is, you know, nerve, like your burning of your nerves where it just feels like your legs on fire, your buttocks is on fire. Um, after I finished that course, I was walking up the stairs of our house at the time with my daughter in my hands and, uh, our arms and, uh, Something happened. I tweaked it the wrong way, I guess. And I kind of collapsed a little bit, if you will. Like my legs kind of gave out. I just quickly tossed her up onto the platform as I tumbled and rolled back down the stairs. Um, after that, uh, you know, immediately we went to the doctor, to the you know battalion aid station. They took x-rays. They referred me to pain management. I went through that process again. Um and then pain management said, look, you need to go see a neurosurgeon. I went and saw him and he had already done an MRI. And, you know, the first 
more or less first words out of his mouth were, you know, there's one thing, there's only one that might have a chance of, of helping you get out of this pain and, you know, getting you back to normal. And that's a four level spinal fusion. And I said, well, what are the odds? It's 50, 50, you know, it's, it's 50% chance you're going to be better and a 50% chance you're either going to be the same or worse pain wise. It took a couple months. My wife and I talked about it and uh, eventually we decided that's what I needed to do. I couldn't sleep at night in a bed. So like there's probably six months that went by that I couldn't sleep next to my wife in bed. I had to sleep on uh, we had a slate coffee table and I would sleep on that coffee table because even the carpet floor was too soft and uh, my I'd wake up just sore all the time throughout the night. So, you know, we went through that process and then um, I said, let's go do it. April 1st, 2014, I had the four level spinal fusion. I'll never forget the day because it's April Fool's Day. And I looked at the surgeon. And I said, if you're messing with me, I'm going to whoop you. <laughs> but uh, when I woke up immediately, once I woke up, you know, I was uh, coming out of anesthetic and uh, I said, it it didn't work like i had i already could tell just from the pain that i was in and with the medication i was on i shouldn't have been in any pain but i was in a lot of pain so i was like something's not right you know and uh you know about the year that followed after that went through a lot of different treatment modalities to figure out what was kind of going on and see if we can help me in any way and nothing worked I ended up just basically on high dose opiates and that just more or less took the edge off. So from you get you get a uh, build a tolerance to those really quick. So and that led to another surgery. That led to a medical retirement. Which um, after I got retired, uh, yeah, that led to another surgery. That surgery that I had, um, unfortunately, there was uh, malpractice involved. And, um, that ended up, uh, waking up from that surgery, left that surgery center from a, in a different state. Um, and, uh, got back to the hotel room. Everything seemed to be all right. And, you know, a couple hours went by and yeah, I felt like I had to urinate, ask the, person who was with me that had signed off on treatment and care for me after the fact and watch out for X, Y, and Z symptoms because again, I came out of anesthesia. So I wasn't able to sign that for myself. And uh, I wasn't aware of a lot of these, these symptoms and stuff that you should look out for. Um, and, but I went to urinate, I had to get help into the bathroom to urinate. I tried as I, as he was, as I was holding on to the gentleman, um, I, I was trying to urinate. And when I went to push, my legs collapsed, my core collapsed, and I just kind of fell onto the toilet. Um, really awkward too, because I always take my hand, and I don't know. I know your listeners can't, uh, you know, see me, but I, I've done it as a comfort thing since I was a young kid. I always take my hand and rub my leg with it. Um, just as like a reassuring thing. Well, I did that and I realized at that point that, you know, I could feel my leg with my hand, but I couldn't feel my hand on my leg. And I'm like, 
So then I tried to move them, and yeah, it uh, it didn't work. Um, you know, the, the individual asked, like, "Well, what do you want me?" To? And I told him, "I can't feel my legs. I can't move them. What do you want me to do?" I said, "Call 911." And uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen right away, and my phone wasn't near me. And you know, I'll never forget that day because that was the first day in my life I ever watched. Uh, as I was being pulled back in a desk chair from the restroom to the bed, um, my legs just bounced across the floor uncontrollably. Like I had no control. And even then, like I, I wasn't worried, you know, I, I just, I, I always, like I said, I left it into God's hands. So I really wasn't that worried about what was happening. I, and I really didn't know what was happening either. And I didn't know until, you know, maybe if, hour hour and a half later when he finally did call 911 and uh as soon as the basic paramedic showed up they called advanced life support because i was already marine corps teaches you a lot uh for triage right they teach you how to triage for shock and things like that but if you ever apply a tourniquet to someone they tell you to write you know t for the tourniquet and then you write the time and the date that it was applied on the person's forehead so i i took that and i made it my own and i took a pen and i would draw on my body where i was losing some where, where i couldn't feel anymore and and, the, and i'd write the time um and i kept doing that and that's when als showed up they were like nope time to go care fly to me to a to a, a shock trauma center and uh i underwent immediate emergent surgery to uh to correct the issue or hopefully correct it but uh unfortunately i had 150 cc blood clot from t6 to t10 and i had blood clots from t1 all the way to l1 and the biggest one the 150 cc one compressed on my spinal cord for so long that it was basically congealed when they got to it um and like jelly is how the doctor described it and uh flattened my spinal cord cut off blood supply and so on and so forth so that left me as a t3 what's called an asia or american spinal uh injury association a uh, so no movement or sensation beneath the level of injury against gravity and um and a complete paraplegic which I didn't realize that till like three years after the fact, but that just means that you lost rectal tone. So if you were to do what's called digital stimulation, like I, you know, I have to do kind of TMI for your listeners, but uh, digital stimulation, we have to insert a finger into your anus, not the planet, but the other spot and, uh, <laughs> and uh, stimulate your bowels so that you can actually, you know, go to the bathroom. Cause uh, I don't know when I have to take a number one or a number two. So, um, but that's when that happened, I, even, even in the shock trauma center, I was thinking to myself, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get through it. Like whatever he's put in my way, he's did it for, he's done it for a reason. You know, God, God has done it for a reason. So I'm going to find the reason why. And, you know, that's, that's how I, that's my outlook on it. I always kept a smile on my face no matter what. I wear a lot of masks to hide that mental anguish and the pain that I suffer and deal with daily, but I do it because I don't want others to see that, that 
in me. Um, but and at the same time, go ahead. No, I'm saying that leads to your resiliency. Yeah. And resilience is defined as the ability to cope with setbacks. Right. In your mind, why is resilience an important skill to cultivate? Cultivate is a very, very strong word in that, uh, that question. Uh, to me, cultivate means to grow or to establish, right? Um, and resiliency, the way you define it is perfect. Um, but in order to maintain that is difficult. Um, it's very important to cultivate that, to cultivate your resilience or the ability to have resilience and fortitude to continue on. Because for me and me personally, I have two young kids. They're 11 and nine now. My son was two, turned three, 11 days after I got paralyzed. Uh, he doesn't remember dad playing kickball with him. He doesn't remember dad taking him on bike rides, you know, in the recumbent trike. Uh, he, he doesn't remember a lot of those things. My daughter was five at the time, just turned. She doesn't remember a lot of those things. And... Unfortunately for me, resiliency, uh, well, fortunately, not unfortunately, I'll say it. Fortunately, resiliency means I get to teach them that no matter what, you know, obstacles or adversities that you face, you need to find a way to get over them, get, get past them. I don't care if you have to do what I just did and build a bridge to get over it. Um, if you need to dig a tunnel to get under it, I don't it, it, find a way around it. Uh, and just make sure that you stay stay on path. Um, so to me, that's 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 how I would uh, say that resiliency is important to cultivate. It's it's not just for me; it helps strengthen me, but it's more for my children and and uh, and and their future lives. So, well, and to that point, I know that you focus on what you can do rather than what you can't do, but you're also a realist. You, you certainly don't sugarcoat things and you tell it exactly like it is, whether we want to hear it or not. I've known you long That's enough so correct. I can say that. Yes, sir. How has your paralysis changed the way that you parent your two kids? You know, what can you do maybe even that surprised you and what can't you do right now? Well, I can't run after them. <laughs> uh, so if they take off, they, they win for a little bit, but they always got that. They've been told, <laughs> I know where you sleep, so it's okay. Uh, but how is it? Uh, has it has it changed how I parent them? It it, it really hasn't. Um, you know, you again the, the Marine Corps we have a motto of adapt and overcome. So I think that's all military branches too, but I can only speak of the Marines. So you know, I adapt my parenting style to to fit the uh, the the situation at the time. Um, whereas, you know, before it might've been, I might've been able to, um, physically go over and reach up on the top shelf and unplug the TV or something, right? Like, no, you didn't get to watch it no more. Now it's more like, uh, I'm just going to take the remotes because you can't reach the top shelf with the TV set. So, um, it also, at the same time, it's, uh, like, Hey, you know, you guys are, you're just going to go outside. We're going to go outside right now. We're going to go play catch. We're going to go do this. We're going to do that. We're going to try. And they'll say, but, you know, ball goes past you. I'm like, that's good. That means you missed the throw. So you need to be more accurate. And I make them go get the ball. You know, it's 
give and take, I believe, in that aspect. I know you as someone who is almost always upbeat, but you have faced mental health challenges and struggles of your own. As anyone would who's gone through the things that you've gone through with your life and your career, and then suddenly you couldn't do them. How has your resilience protected you from mental health issues such as depression? It hasn't, to be honest. And I mean, you know me well enough, Chris. It, it definitely hasn't. Um, however, like I stated earlier, you know, I, I wear a lot of masks to hide that. Um, I deal with it constantly. Uh, the, the big the big problem with that is, um, again, I internalize a lot of it, but I. People have always told told me that if uh, if you talk to yourself, that's not a bad thing. But when it's when you answer yourself, that's the bad thing. Um, so I don't try to verbalize, or you know, uh, I don't I don't try to answer myself uh, using my actual voice. I do it inside my head instead. That way, no one can tell me I'm crazy. Uh, but it, it hasn't. A, it, it's it's been more detrimental to my mental health than it has been positive. And I say it that way, but I even thinking about it now, I can, you know, I can add to it and say that it's strengthened me in the same aspect where, you know, I know what I deal with on a daily basis. And so when I meet others that are similarly injured, like I am, my main goal then is to talk with them because I know that not everyone can hide it the way that I do, or not everyone can, you know, push it down and internalize that, that pain that we deal with. And this, that again, that mental anguish, that heartbreak. So, um, I try to, to speak with them, joke around, have a good time, um, and let them know that, you know, we can we can do this like together if you need my help let me know if i can be of assistance in any way let me know um and a lot of times too like i learn from them just as much as they may learn from me um i make sure that i learn from everyone i i come across because i believe you should learn at least something new every day whatever it might be um on that note though it's it 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 is still very much so debilitating in the mental health aspect where it, I get, I get upset at myself. Like this happened a little while ago. I was like, where's my phone? Like I got this call with Chris. I know my phone's around here somewhere and I couldn't find my phone. And I, you know, felt in all my pockets and I turned my watch to locate my phone. My phone was sitting on my lap and I just didn't feel it. And it's like, well, I hate that. Like, I hate not being able to feel like that. That part sucks. Um, but right now that's life. So I accept that. I think you have to, especially, I mean, I wasn't like this the whole time. It took me a couple of years to end up the way that I am now, how I look at life. And, and that's, it's kind of that in a nutshell. I mean, it, it, the first two years I barely got out of bed and barely did anything. And I, cause I didn't think I could. And it wasn't until I started to actually push myself, and try to try to do more. And, and I could see how my depression was 
you know, impacting my children and my wife, my family, um, and not wearing, by not, you know, necessarily wearing those masks or being resilient. Um, I decided at that point that, you know, it's time to, to shape up, you know, I, I got to change and that's when I, okay, like I'm going to figure out a way to do everything that, you know, I can possibly do. And if I can't do it and I failed, that doesn't mean I failed at doing it. It just means that I found a way that didn't work. So, you know, I go back to like Thomas Edison, you know, or, you know, umpteen times he failed on making a light bulb and okay. But he, all he did was find, you know, umpteen times uh, ways it didn't work uh, until he finally found the one that did. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I look at it, right? I mean, that's the best way to, I think, articulate it is you, you can fail and fail and fail as much as you want. But if you give up, that's when you just lost, you lost the battle with yourself. And when you lose that battle with yourself, that's when you've lost the war. So, you know, it's a, there was a thing on it. Ironically, there was, you do know me very well. There was a thing on uh, Facebook the other day, uh, barely get on social media much anymore. Just try to stay too active and too busy. But, you know, Matthew McConaughey was, uh, said something like, you know, don't half-ass it. Like, don't half-ass it. I think that's something, you know, like we say it a lot, but like, you know, if you half-ass something, uh, you know that, or, or sorry, if you if you half-ass something, you don't know what it could have been. And so, what if you would have done it and did your best and tried as hard as you could to do it? You don't know if, at the end of the day, what the outcome would have been, and that's what keeps you up at night. And so, I I do my best not to half-ass things. I. I if I'm going to do it, I try to do it right the first time. And if I can't do it right the first time, I continue to try until I find a way to do it. So, Well, that's a great way to put it. Uh, you know, one thing I know that you definitely do not half-ass is support causes that are important to you. That is correct. Yes, sir. And one cause that you've recently become involved in is speaking out against legislative efforts in some states that limit the non-economic damages that people receive from medical malpractice judgments or settlements. Why does that matter to you? Non-economic damages, uh, a lot of times are just defined as pain and suffering. Um, unfortunately, that's not that's not all of it. Um, and you know, when I was going through the the malpractice issues that I was dealing with, um, there was a cap on non-economic damages in the state that I was in of $750,000. And if, if you think about it, so that isn't the non-economic damages don't, that's not your, that's not your lost wages, right? So if you look across the United States and uh, you see that right now in our current economy, um, unfortunately, you know, people are struggling to get by. Um, with that being said, if an 18 year old kid or even a, at the age I was a 28 year old individual, if they are 
suffering or just struggling to get by with a family, um, they have um, almost nothing for for, for regular economic damages, for lost wages. Um, so those damages right there, they, they might not get anything really for that. So then the, their pain and suffering, that mental anguish I was talking about that I deal with, that's, that's uh, I mean, non-economic damages are really defined as um, that they're there to compensate you for pain and suffering, for emotional distress, for loss of consortium, uh, for your spouse, uh, for the, just the inconvenience of what's going on. Uh, and then, then there's just any other uh, uh, non-punitive, non, uh, non-compensatory damages. Um, but people don't understand what pain and suffering really is. So with that being said, pain and suffering isn't just um, physical pain. It's mental. It's emotional. It's the fact that I can't procreate naturally with my wife. Uh, and we wanted more children, you know, doesn't mean I can't adopt. Don't get me wrong, but you know, we wanted our own more children, but you know, because of this, we now have seen a, uh, a difference where we, you know, we like, there's, there's a lot of children out there that need help. So, there's a lot of children in the United States of America that um, are in foster care or are, you know, up for adoption and could use a good home um, and good people to raise them. Right. And um, it, it just doesn't, non-economic damages don't make sense to put a cap on someone's losses of what their pain and suffering, what they're dealing with daily. It's, it's uh, where you're punishing the victim and and not the perpetrator of the of the event and that's my personal opinion on that it's i i believe there should be a, a common ground but however i don't know what that common ground is um but i still i just don't believe in caps on those damages Bryce Trey Holmes you're one of the most positive most resilient individuals that anyone will ever meet i appreciate you sharing your story with us today Chris, I appreciate you just letting me do exactly that and share this story. Semper and thank Fi, you brother. to you and all of your listeners and Semper Fidelis as well. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with a leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.